0: Thanks for your support on Patreon, Jeff Zanon. Jeff attempted to travel with the Spanish diplomatic mission to The Hague in spring 1621, but unfortunately, he got plagued before he could go and he died. Sorry about that, Jeff, but you'll be happy to know this isn't true. Jeff is still alive and well. Hi there, Jeff, and thanks for supporting this show. If you want me to lie about you, head on over to Patreon and you know the rest. Otherwise, enjoy this latest episode of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War, episode 27. Last time, the turbulent state of Dutch domestic affairs were examined. We concluded that after this crisis, the civilian leader, Johan van olden was executed, which left Maurice of Nassau in a position of unprecedented power. As Maurice filled the relevant positions in the state with all of his orangest supporters, before long it became apparent that one of the most important decisions of his administration was was about to arrive. The question being, should the 12 years' truce be extended, or should it be allowed to expire, with the resumption of war with Spain being the result? In this episode, after giving some background, we're going to look at both sides of the coin, and examine why the Spanish and Dutch did determine to resume their war, thus widening the ongoing conflict in the empire in the process. Without any further ado, let's get into it as I take you to the Dutch Republic in spring 1621. Peter Peck was the Chancellor of Brabant, and as such was a high-ranking official in the Spanish Netherlands, and he could be expected to speak in the name of his masters in Brussels and in Madrid, and to act in their interests. He was too significant a figure to ignore his diplomatic mission to The Hague in spring of 1621 on the very eve of the expiry of the Twelve Years' Truce and the potential resumption of hostilities between Spain and the Dutch. Some anticipation surrounded Peter Peck's arrival and when he stood before the States General in the Dutch capital there was a lot of interest in what he was about to say. Could this Spanish servant be here to offer genuine terms or proper concessions or some form of agreement which would heal the last four decades of bitterness between the North and South Netherlands and between The Hague and Madrid? Peter Peck's presentation started off quite well. He spoke with great emotion of the interests of the Netherlands, our common fatherland, a reference, no doubt, to the desire on both sides of the Netherlands divide to reunite their country under one flag some day. After this, though, things quickly went downhill. He invited the States-General to come to a settlement under acknowledgment of the natural sovereigns, which of course meant the archdukes and consequently the King of Spain. No wonder, the historian Peter Gale recounts, their high mightinesses in the States-General listened to him with headshakes and sighs of amazement. No wonder indeed, because it seemed like Peter Peck, this intelligent and perceptive individual, had been sent to The Hague on a fool's errand, with a mission simply to make the Dutch see sense in the typically ignorant and arrogant Spanish style of government. Peter Peck's mission soon became hotly resented by the Dutch, and he quickly felt his presence become unwelcome by this insult. As per diplomatic protocol, Peck was protected in his exit from the country, and this protection was certainly needed from the enraged populations of Delft and Rotterdam, who had moved to intercept him once they learned of his preposterous demands. It seemed even after all these years of fighting the Spanish, those same Spanish did not take the Dutch seriously, or... If they did take the Dutch seriously, they didn't appreciate the circumstances or the reality of the situation in 1621. How could the Dutch possibly have agreed to this request from Peck? How could they simply put themselves in the care of the natural sovereigns, as though the recent bitter history hadn't occurred? How, indeed, could they trust a word that the Spanish said? Their enemy's ignorance had left them stunned, but maybe Peter Peck's snub had been deliberate? Maybe it had all been a mind game and a chance for Madrid to demonstrate that they really didn't take the Dutch seriously. The state's general wouldn't play along, and Peter Peck's embassy was evicted almost immediately. Shortly thereafter, the 12 years truce did expire, the war was resumed, and even more significantly, two figures from a bygone age died. The first was Archduke Albert, one half of the Archduke's government in Brussels, upon which the governance in the Spanish Netherlands passed to his widow Isabella. These were the archdukes that were supposedly the natural sovereigns that Peter Peck was referring to. Secondly, King Philip III of Spain died on the last day of March, 1621, whereupon the throne of Spain passed to his son, Philip IV. As though the disasters and disappointments of the previous generation had never been, Peter Gale wrote, this young man preserved inviolate in his mind the pretensions of his father and grandfather, Knowing how the second phase of the Spanish-Dutch War panned out, and knowing that this stretch of the conflict cost Spain dearly, ruined her security, and effectively guaranteed her inability to properly defeat the French, it can seem like the most irresponsible example of denial that no individual, or king, or government intervened to stop the madness, and to save the Spanish people any more suffering in this hopeless conflict. Pronouncements about the perceived impossibility of defeating the Dutch were by no means absent from Spanish government circles, and yet the conflict was resumed anyway, with the same vague and possible goals of subordinating the Dutch to Spanish rule and of taking the rebellious provinces in the name of the new king. As the historian Peter Brightwell wrote in his article looking at the Spanish system and the Twelve Years' Truce, Underlying much of the comment on Spanish behaviour at the time is the feeling that the wise course of action in 1621 would have been for the Spaniards to cut their losses either by extending the truce or by winding up the war altogether. In fact, of course, they fought on, to no avail, for another 27 years. The implication is that they never made a rational assessment of their power and capabilities relative to those of the Dutch. The business of taking decisions was a matter of espionage, political and court intrigue, ideological claptrap, bureaucratic inflexibility, religious fanaticism, anything, in fact except rational appraisal. Indeed, irrational seems in many respects to be the most accurate description of Spanish foreign policy by 1621. Either Madrid understood the risks and ploughed onwards anyway with their war with the Dutch, or the Spanish government was so completely ignorant of these risks, and so consumed by the idea that nothing had really changed in the Spanish-Dutch relationship, that the war could be won. Either way, the Spanish approach to foreign policy seems ruinous, suicidal even, unless we consider that Spanish policymakers, led by Balthazar de Zuniga, assessed the situation in spring 1621 and concurred that, rather than it being a question of whether or not to renew the war, Spain had no choice but to renew it. To maintain the peace would have spelled doom for the Spanish Empire and for the reputation and prestige of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty, At least in war, the debilitating effects of Dutch piratical enterprise abroad could be combated by taking the fight to the Dutch in the European homeland. That at least was the idea, and initially, at least until a turning point of sorts began to occur from the mid-1620s, this estimation proved correct. The Spanish government had not allowed the truce to expire without offering terms of any kind, though. Three points of primary importance were put forward by the new king, Philip IV freedom of worship for Catholics, the opening of the River Scheldt to trade, and the evacuation of Dutch privateers and tradesmen from the Indies. Of these three requests, the final one was the most urgent for Spain, who had paid dearly in the truce, thanks to the Dutch commitment of resources to piracy. Since the Dutch didn't really have to worry about home defence, more resources and manpower and money could be spent harassing Spanish and Portuguese shipping, which paid dividends for the Dutch, and caused unrelenting havoc for Spain. Perceptive Spanish statesmen would have noted that the truce years represented only the culmination of Dutch piracy and intrusion into Hispanic markets overseas. The trend truly began from 1594, when the defensive phase of the Spanish-Dutch War ended and the Netherlands was made secure against any idea of a Spanish reconquest. In that year of 1594, in fact the Dutch captained half of all ships which passed through the Baltic Sound, whereupon the resources and trading cities of the Baltic would be accessed. Evidently, the Dutch were more than accustomed to naval enterprise, and the expertise they exuded in these northern dealings made the Baltic region a theatre of profound importance to their economic interests, a fact which Spain was later to attempt to undermine. Thus, it must be stressed that the Dutch had been giving Spain a run for their money for several decades before the truce was concluded, and that the truce, rather than permitting the Dutch to test these new markets, enabled them instead to squeeze more out of them than ever before. The historian, Engel Sluter, in his article looking at Spanish-Dutch rivalry in the Caribbean, wrote the following. Thousands of Netherlanders repeatedly made the American run, and the experience they acquired prepared them to hurl their great challenge against the Iberian powers in America after the renewal of hostilities and the founding of the Dutch West India Company in 1621. Furthermore, Sluter concluded that Dutch conflict with Spain and the Spanish response so drained and exhausted Spain's resources that Madrid proved simply incapable of allocating enough resources to the fringes of its empire. This reduction in authority on the edges of the realm enabled other powers like England and France to sneak into the Spanish backyard of America, and it helps to explain why the English colony of Virginia was virtually untouched by the Spanish for the entirety of its existence. Spain simply lacked the means to respond to so many threats at once, and her capabilities had been significantly reduced thanks to the War of Attrition with the Dutch. The reason why the truce had provided the Dutch with what in Madrid was considered something of a breather was due to the clause within that truce, specifically Clause 4, which read as follows. The said King of Spain understands this truce to be restrained and limited to the kingdoms, countries, lands and lordships which he has and possesses in Europe and other places and seas in which the subjects of other princes, who are his friends and allies, have the said trade by mutual consent as regards the places, towns, ports and harbours that he holds beyond the said limits, that the lords' estates and their subjects may not carry on any trade without the express permission of the said lord king, but they shall be allowed to carry on the said trade, if it seems good to them, in the countries of all other princes, potentates and peoples, who may wish to permit them to do so even outside the said limits, without the word of the said lord king, his officers and subjects, ...who depend on him, making any impediment in the event to the said princes, potentates and peoples who may have permitted it to them, nor equally to them, i.e., the Dutch, or to the persons with whom they have carried out or will carry out the said trade. By this, admittedly it's a bit of a word salad, but by this clause, the Spanish actually acknowledged the Dutch right to trade, not only with powers in Europe, but also with those European possessions under the Spanish flag such as the southern Spanish Netherlands. This was a huge concession, and because of the implications of it, and the weight of advantages it granted the Dutch during the truce years, the Spanish government and public proved highly sensitive to its interpretation. Did the clause permit the Dutch to venture into the Indies and trade with the powers in place there? Did the clause permit the Dutch to encroach on the trade monopoly in these theatres in the modern-day Caribbean and Asian territories, which the Spanish and Portuguese has spent more than a century building up. Thanks to the vagueness of this clause, the Dutch were able to interpret it as they desired, and the resulting encroachment and enrichment of these usurpers was bitterly resented in Madrid and in Lisbon. To these sensitivities, we have to add a further layer. As for the papal resolution set forth by Pope Alexander VI in the 15th century, all lands and territories outside of Europe were to be divided between the Spanish and Portuguese crowns. Upon this papal bull, Lisbon and Madrid based their legitimacy and prestige, and they vociferously opposed any challenge or loophole that the other side might try to exploit to get around it. Any foreign potentates who traded with countries that were not Spanish or Portuguese were chastised as rebels, and so long as they possessed the power to reinforce this position, it remained a formidable means through which the Iberian monopoly over all colonial possessions could be assured. Of course, once their European peers began establishing colonies of their own, this papal bull only remained relevant for a limited time. The loophole chosen by the European powers to make their way into these markets was one which claimed that Spanish-Portuguese exclusivity there was only valid in places that these powers were actually the occupying force, a claim and a papal grant were not sufficient to halt the tide of enterprise, adventure, and piracy from the European powers, least of all from the Dutch. Within Clause 4, neither Spain nor the Dutch made any concessions about this technicality. The Spanish continued to claim rights by papal decree, and the Dutch continued to ignore them. As the historian Peter Brightwell noted, Both sides probably left the conference table in 1609, believing that they, or their lawyers, had tricked the other with regard to Clause 4. Of course, when it emerged that both chose to interpret the truce as they saw fit, accusations of bad faith and manipulation were thrown about. Thanks to the inherent vagueness of the clause which both sides had agreed to, though, they really only had themselves to blame. At the same time, if this examination of the lingo used in treaties has taught us anything, it is that neither the Spanish nor the Dutch expected issues as contentious as trade with the Indies to be resolved with a single agreement. We should remember that this clause was included within the 12 years truce, truce being the key word. This was not the Treaty of Eternal Peace between Spain and the Dutch. It was not expected to last longer than 12 years, and if it was to be renewed in 1621, then that was a problem for the negotiators that were present at the bargaining table at that point in time. As a result of this favouring of short-term solutions, and a deliberate avoidance of any definite resolution, The Dutch established a substantial presence in the Indies through these 12 years, and they wreaked havoc on the Spanish financial markets. There was absolutely no chance that the Dutch would evacuate these positions in 1621, and the truce years had shown the resolute determination the Dutch had to exploit Spanish overextension and supplant them as the predominant trading power. Spain was therefore determined in its own right to retain their grip on their theoretical right to keep the Dutch out And to prevent the Dutch presence in the Indies from ever becoming accepted or seen as natural in any way. The more recognition which the Dutch acquired, the harder it would be for Spain to reverse these dangerous new developments. From 1619, when the question of renewing the truce became a topic for discussion in Spain, the school of thought began to take root that the Dutch had been given an easy ride in the previous decade. Had the truce never been signed, the Dutch would have been far too beleaguered in Europe to have invested so much resources in the explosion of their commercial interests abroad. The idea is somewhat flawed, as we've seen, because from 1594, the Spanish had proved unable to actually threaten the existence of the Dutch, and it's from this point, rather than from 1609, that Dutch intervention in Spanish overseas markets began to increase. On the other hand, while they were mistaken on the origins of the current problem, the Spanish were correct to denote a solidifying Dutch presence in the Indies during the truce years. It was only to be expected that with the closing of one front in the war against Spain, the Dutch would pursue another with a great deal more energy and enthusiasm than they had before, not least because the option of venturing to the Indies provided a sense of wonder and an opportunity for enrichment, which was absent in the European war. The Spanish understood this, and the correlation of peace with their decline and vulnerability overseas So they were presented with two options, either force the Dutch out or make a demand that they have to leave the Indies as a prerequisite of a renewal of the truce. There was little utility, alternatively, in renewing the truce, but also taking the fight to the Dutch in the Indies as some Spanish wished to do, simply because of the size of the theatres in question. They were far too large to be given to many long-term plans. Communication and access to accurate information there was incredibly difficult in such far-flung places, so it was often easier to provide Spanish vessels with vague instructions for them to improvise according to their own interests, rather than to issue inflexible demands which could be outdated by the time their destination was reached. A resumption of the European war would focus the issue and remove what was believed to be the Dutch advantage from the equation. With the playing field levelled, the Spanish and Portuguese would be better able to defend their overseas interests, and if necessary, portions of the Dutch Republic could be exchanged for these interests in due course. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So, to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With the Dutch gone from the Indies, it would not matter that the rebellious provinces remained outside of the king's control in Europe because Spain could rest assured that the income from the king's overseas domains would begin to pick up again now that the Dutch pirates and traders were absent. Perhaps unsurprisingly, since the truce had resulted in something of a free-for-all which the Dutch had greatly benefited from, the concept of abandoning these lucrative tactics was impossible. Not only that, but Peter Gale noted that it actually united the Netherlands against the idea of a continued peace altogether, if that was the price Spain requested. It was better, or it was believed to be better in the Netherlands, to resume the war and retain their knife to Spain's colonial interests, even if it meant that Spain would be working overtime to force the Dutch to spend more on home defence. The more threatened the Dutch felt at home, the more resources and attention they would have to allocate to their home defence, and the clock could potentially be turned back to a period before 1594, when the Dutch revolt ceased to be a war of national survival to the Dutch, and when their debilitating assaults on Spanish overseas interests had truly begun. So after all this background of will they, won't they, our analysis must begin with the expiration of the truce in April 1621. We're going to continue that story history, friends, but before I do that, I want to remind you of something very important. Are you listening to this story of the Dutch right now thinking, this would be so much better if you were talking about Poland? Well, if you are, then I've got some great news for you. Smooth. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and for a fiver a month, you can access the story of Poland is Not Yet Lost, the history of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century. We're in the midst of this story now, on the eve of the outbreak of the War of the Polish Succession in 1733. But we're going from beginning to end, from the beginnings with the Great Northern War to the very end of the story in 1800 when Napoleon seemed the best hope for all those Poles. As you can tell from that short synopsis, the history of Poland in the 18th century was a varied and fascinating one, and it's also a story which really hasn't been told all that much, considering the fact that Poland was a very important part of European politics throughout the 1700s. Thinking of Frederick the Great, thinking of Catherine the Great, thinking of Maria Theresa the Great. Poland was surrounded by powers which unfortunately are a lot more famous than she ever was, but that doesn't mean that the story of Poland doesn't deserve to be heard. In fact, I would argue you can't really understand the story of Europe in the 1700s without the Polish element. So if you'd like to join me for that, head on over to Patreon, and by dropping a fiver on us every month, or by paying it all up front in a year and saving 5% as you do so, you'll be able to access this and hours of back catalogue content too. Supporting the podcast in this way is super beneficial to me. It means I can get the PhD done, and it also means that I can rely on this podcast and not have to worry too much about income, all that kind of stuff. It's a great stress reliever, in other words, and it's amazing to see how many of you have signed up to support so far. I know money is tight at the moment, but if you feel like you could afford it, that would be super appreciated. Otherwise, guys, thanks so much for the support you've given so far. And hey, if you're not really in the mood for dropping money on this show, I completely understand. But why not do something for free, like give us an iTunes review, follow me on Twitter, I'm pretty active there, or join the Facebook group. That is where the community of history friends gather, and we're nearly a thousand strong. So why not come and say hello? Alright guys, thanks for putting up with me. Now let's get back to the show. Only a few weeks before the expiration of the 12 Years Truce, A strategic coup by Ambrojo Spiñola, the commander of Spanish forces in the region, had forced the Evangelical Union to dissolve itself, and with his army, Spiñola refocused his attention on the Dutch once more. By this point in our wider Thirty Years' War story, the Dutch had learned of the defeat of Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. He'd been defeated the previous November in 1620 at the Battle of White Mountain, and he'd taken up residence in The Hague. If the Dutch wished to remain aloof from Frederick's schemes and to refrain from provoking the wrath of the Holy Roman Emperor, then they were incapable of keeping the Winter King on any kind of leash. We might recall that in July 1622, Frederick released Christian of Brunswick and Ernst of Mansfeld, his two most important commanders, from his service. Within a few months, after troubling Frederick to no end in his temporary residence at Sedan, these two commanders and the men who remained at their disposal were hired by the Dutch, and the Dutch urged them to rush forwards and relieve the siege of Bergen-Op-Zoom, which they did on the 4th of October 1622. As we've seen in previous episodes, by autumn 1622, Frederick was relying on King James's policy of mediation to save his Rhineland Palatinate, and Frederick sincerely believed that by refraining from hostilities, the Spanish would also cease from troubling his homeland. but. It was not to be. The Spanish had no interest in holding back, and they sought to make use of their gains along the Rhine to better pursue their war with the Dutch. It seems like King James hadn't figured this out, and that he didn't realise that the Spanish were playing for keeps when they occupied the Lower Palatinate in its entirety by late 1622. By the end of 1622, only the fortress town of Frankenthal remained in Frederick's hands, and this only because the garrison of that fortress was English. When this garrison was ordered to surrender by James in spring 1623, Frederick officially lost control of his entire Palatinate, with the Rhinish portion occupied by Spain and the upper portion further to the east occupied by Bavaria. By spring 1623, the Dutch had also been pretty busy. Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick's combined army proved its usefulness. The decision was then made to pay for its wages for another few months to keep it in the field. This was great news for Ernst of Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick, who had both searched for a purpose ever since Frederick had released them from his service. It was also promising news for the Dutch, who could keep Mansfeld in winter quarters over sixteen twenty two to twenty three along their border to the southwest. This would hopefully keep Ambrogio Spagnola occupied. Despite the total loss of his homeland, by the turn of sixteen twenty three, Frederick had returned to the Hague and was well-placed to coordinate a joint offensive against the Habsburgs of both branches, and with Dutch support. The Dutch army would hold Spanish attention in the Netherlands, while Mansfeld and Christian would move towards Bohemia, and Bethlen Gabor would strike out from Hungary. Frederick had high hopes, but as usual, these hopes were disappointed. The Spanish-Dutch border proved relatively quiet in 1623, but this was perhaps the only net positive of Frederick's plan. Once again, Ernst of Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick worked their way towards Bohemia, and once again, Count Tilly, the commander of the Catholic League, strove to meet them in battle. As before, Mansfeld and Christian of Brunswick divided their troops, but this didn't necessarily appear to matter, as Christian led 21,000 men. Christian learned that Count Tilly had aimed at cutting him off by moving through the borders of Lower Saxony, perhaps to send a message to John George of Saxony and the minor princes near his lands. These princes of the lower Saxon circle were caught between Count Tilly's warnings and and Christian of Brunswick's urgings, neither of which were particularly friendly. Neutral, the princes and people were and wished to remain, but they had no choice, so said the historian Wedgwood as Christian marched across the countryside. On the 13th of July, 1623, Count Tilly crossed the border into Lower Saxony, fulfilling his plans to meet Christian before he could reach his destination or link up with Ernst of Mansfeld. For his part, Christian of Brunswick sent repeated letters to Ernst of Mansfeld, urging the veteran commander to join him with his smaller army. But Mansfeld refrained from doing so, since he had located secure quarters in the Bishopric of Munster, and didn't intend to expose himself and place his best resource, that resource being his army, at risk. A sense of desperation now entered Christian of Brunswick's actions. He prepared his army not to fight Tilly, but to withdraw to the Netherlands with the plunder that his now-reduced army of 15,000 had gathered. With insufficient discipline and speed, not to mention being weighed down by their ill-gotten gains, Christian's army was forced to turn around and meet Count Tilly's in the Battle of Statlon on the 6th of August, 1623. What followed was, according to Geoffrey Parker, the most decisive of all the Catholic victories, who noted that the carefully coordinated net of agreements and alliances broke apart almost immediately upon the news of Christian of Brunswick's terrible defeat. Christian limped home with only 6,000 men remaining, many of whom elected to desert rather than continue serving this luckless man. Count Tilly would have followed the significant victory with an attack on Mansfeld in Munster, but Mansfeld's defences were too strong for such an act at this moment. The ripples of Christian's defeat inflicted another defeat on Mansfeld, though, because with that ally of Frederick in retreat, the money for Frederick's other allies seemed to dry up. Mansfeld would be forced to disband his precious army for want of pay in early 1624, Many of these disbanded soldiers simply entered the very hot war in the Dutch Republic, but overall, by 1624, we can judge that the Dutch effort to coordinate with Frederick had manifestly failed for both sides. Frederick conceded defeat, and he placed his cause in King James's hands once more. The Dutch, meanwhile, faced a renewed Spanish onslaught across the frozen rivers in early 1624. Ambrogio Spagnola led a large army into the Dutch Republic, wasting the countryside and terrifying the populace, and almost reaching Utrecht. By August 1624, the symbolic fortress town of Breda was under siege. One marvels at the rate which Spain had apparently turned their misfortune around. The key ingredients to Spanish success, it seemed, were those circumstances which had served Madrid so well in the past, both the French and the English for different reasons, were occupied and unable to aid the Dutch war effort as they previously would have. As the Dutch had invested money and effort into Christian of Brunswick in the hope that he would take the pressure off their frontiers, the Spanish had prepared a multi-layered offensive for the year of 1624. The town of Breda formed one spoke on this wheel as that was put under siege, but another option was to cut the Dutch off from their lifeline of European trade, the Spanish authorities were convinced that taking away the trade of the Dutch is the most important thing we can do to aid the war in the Netherlands and bring about a favourable settlement. To this end, the Spanish had raised a fleet of twenty four ships to police their ports and prevent any Dutch trade there, while they had also rigorously attacked Dutch shipping in European waters and sunk several fishing vessels. Unable now to access their timber, their salt, or their herring resources, Dutch merchants started to grow uneasy, while shortages prevented the Dutch from making repairs or paying for the resources and manpower that they desperately needed. In May 1624, the Dutch overseas had boldly attacked and seized the capital of Portuguese Brazil, but the Spanish responded quickly and recaptured this bastion of Iberian colonialism the following year. Emperor Ferdinand, and this is where the crossover between the two Habsburg branches becomes very interesting, Emperor Ferdinand sent soldiers to aid Ambrosio Spagnola's Siege of Breda, and after beating back several Dutch efforts to relieve the town, Breda surrendered to the Spanish in June 1625. The notion that Spanish interests at home would be insulated by an all-out assault on Dutch defences was greatly aided by King Philip IV's determination to pursue the war against the Dutch with more vigour than had ever been done since the days of his grandfather. Unlike Philip III, who had ruled during a period of truce and before then a stalemate, Philip IV sent as much money as he could to the Spanish Netherlands, a tactic which provided Spain with some surprising victories and a region which appeared shorn of all potential triumphs at one point. Perhaps the dark days of Dutch self-preservation and desperation had returned after all, and the Spanish plan had paid off. News of the catastrophic loss of Breda certainly burned the Dutch badly. Riots broke out in Amsterdam, Haarlem, The Hague and Delft as a result of frustration against the lagging war effort as well as the rising tax increases which had been brought in to pay for it. The death of Maurice of Nassau, the fighting father of the Dutch nation, was a further blow. Maurice's successor was his half-brother Frederick Henry and Frederick Henry was faced with monumental challenges. But a perceptive assessment of European diplomacy in that troubled year of 1625 would have revealed that a great deal had changed, with new opportunities opening up in the relevant courts. All was not lost. Indeed, even as Frederick's options and his allies appeared to dwindle to nothing by late 1623, change was in the air for the Winter King as well, courtesy of a shift underway in London. After several years in pursuit of a distinct policy, that being a Spanish marriage, King James was finally forced to alter his plans after a dramatic series of events convinced him that the end goal, a Anglo-Spanish marriage and alliance treaty, was impossible. Thus enlightened and certainly spurned, King James endeavoured to work towards a new goal, the creation of a Protestant alliance of European powers, which the Winter King had for so long urged, the question was, would Frederick's father-in-law create this league in time before the Habsburg supremacy became too formidable to challenge? One couldn't say for certain, but with the increase in diplomatic activity, it became apparent that no matter how many times he beat Frederick, the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II would not be able to end this war yet. The contest, which had begun as a Bohemian revolt, had mutated into a constitutional issue, then a struggle between dynastic rivals. And now this conflict between Frederick and Ferdinand seemed to be transformed once again. As new enemies mobilised, Emperor Ferdinand prepared himself by employing a personal army of his own, under a loyal commander. If the stakes were destined to be raised, then the Emperor was determined not to shy away from whatever challenges this wretched conflict threw at him next, no matter what it cost him or Germany. In the next episode, the struggle continues, but our focus changes. What had King James of England and Scotland been doing all this time? And why had he consistently refused to fulfil Frederick's dreams and Ferdinand's nightmares by actively involving himself in the anti habsburg diplomacy, which appeared perfect for English diplomatists? What did his people think of their king's insistence on portraying himself as some kind of honest mediator? And what factors conspired to so alter this policy culminating in the dramatic scene of the Prince of Wales visiting Madrid incognito in late 1623. All of this and so much more is to come in the next set of episodes, History Friends, so I hope you'll join me next time. Until then, my name is Zach, and this has been the 30 Years War episode 27. Thanks so much for listening to this show, and thank you to those patrons who support us so generously. It has been my pleasure to bring this episode to you. Stay safe, mask up, and I'll be seeing you all soon.